0: Hey everyone, this is Ashley Lauren Rogers. It's about 7 a.m. on November 10th, uh, just one day after it was made official that Donald Trump would be the U.S. president. And I'm sure we're all feeling a lot of emotions. I definitely took yesterday to decompress, um, I, I guess is the word I'll use. And I Just wanted to say very earnestly and honestly, uh, first off, I was just going to pop this mini-episode, our first mini-episode, on medical gatekeeping up. Uh, But I feel like I have to address the giant gold-colored elephant in the room and say that know that you are loved, whoever you are, if you are listening to this know that you are loved. The outpouring of support that I have received, the outpouring of support that I have heard from the panelists on this show uh, has really touched me. And the people who have reached out to me uh, regardless of this show has been amazing. I feel that we as a nation have the potential to be something so much better and it does sadden me to see where it is going so for now know that you are loved and I hope that that is enough for now Uh, there are two things that I think that you can do if you want to Support folks. There's a show coming up from Theater of the Oppressed NYC uh, in conjunction with the Housing Works troupe called Some Things Money Can't Buy, which is absolutely everything to do with the topic that we're going to present to you, uh, Medical Gatekeeping. That's happening November 22nd from 7 to 9 p.m. at Housing Works Bookstore, 126 Crosby Street in New York. Uh, and this is a free show the other thing would be to support Planned Parenthood they're going to need your help a lot more in the uh, coming years if this is going to be anything like previous voting records from the vice presidential uh, elect but I also want to read from you a quote and this is uh, specifically because recently, we, our most recent episode is the Star Trek Next Generation episode, and uh, Gene Roddenberry obviously created Star Trek, but he also advised in the earlier days of the Next Generation, and what he said was, Star Trek was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins, not just to tolerate but take a special delight in differences, in ideas, and differences in life forms. If we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, to take a positive delight in those small differences between our kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that is almost certainly out there. Uh, And this is me talking. Uh, I will continue to love this country because of its potential. So I want to leave you with that. uh, As we talk about medical gatekeeping for now and going forward in the future. So again, uh, this medical gatekeeping mini-episode was uh, actually recorded about a month ago. And it's being made public now. everyone this is Ashley Lauren Rogers thank you so much for listening thank you so much if you're hearing this now uh, which should be on October 13th you're probably listening on Patreon and we want to thank you so much if you have given to the Patreon uh, and the best way to hear these mini episodes that are going to be exclusive to Patreon for about a month is to become a sponsor now we have the link uh, in just about everywhere that you can find it, hopefully, uh, and you should definitely support us. We have subscriptions as low as $1 a month. Uh, for $3 a month, you can ask the panel a question, and I'll put together a Patreon-specific uh, answer so that you only hear that, but again, only if you subscribe. And that's so that you, as the folks that are helping to support us, get to hear that first. Uh, I'm really I don't want to say excited about this topic, but I am, because we're talking about medical gatekeeping. And that is a very serious issue within the trans community. Well, I shouldn't say within the trans community, more about the trans community. So in one of the latest episodes of Is It Transphobic, we discussed Silence of the Lambs. And specifically, there was a point where we started talking about medical gatekeeping. Uh, now, I know, I at least before the episode, I knew a little bit about it, and I could talk a little bit about it. And after doing a fair amount of research on it, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, yes, Silence of the Lambs is still transphobic, as we determined. Yes, you should still see it. Hannibal Lecter is proven to be an even bigger fucking insidious psychopath because of this because of the real facts of medical gatekeeping. Uh, And when I say that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what medical gatekeeping is and how it affected the trans community uh, right now. And then we'll circle back to talk about Hannibal Lecter. Now, for those unfamiliar, uh, medical gatekeeping is essentially a practice by which medical or, uh, in other cases, psychological professionals either alone or work in tandem to withhold something necessary from their patient for, and uh, I'm going to put air quotes on this, their own good. Now, a lot of the information that I am going to be referencing is from Whipping Girl uh, by Julia Serrano. And this is a uh, trans person who, uh, trans woman specifically, who was also a biologist. And Whipping Girl is a fantastic book if you are looking to find the history uh, of trans experience, uh, because she delves very deeply into a lot of this stuff, and she cites her sources. The other two books I would recommend reading if you want to know a little bit more about transgender history are literally Transgender History by Susan Stryker, and As Nature Made Him the Boy Who Was Raised a Girl by John Colapinto. So before we start, I wanted to share a quote from Julia... Serrano from The Whipping Girl in Chapter 6, Intrinsic Inclinations Explaining Gender and Sexual Diversity. Uh, That's from page 120 of the second edition. While the gatekeepers consistently argued that these methods were designed to protect the transsexual, and this is me jumping out of there for a second, uh, Julia Serrano used transsexual in the first edition and goes into an explanation as to why she still uses that term for this. Uh, And it makes perfect sense in context, but just so that you know the term transsexual is used. Uh, While the gatekeepers consistently argued that these methods were designed to protect the transsexual, the way they were executed, especially prior to the mid-1990s, reveals an underlying agenda. Whether unconscious or deliberate, The gatekeepers clearly sought to, one, minimize the number of transsexuals who transitioned, two, ensure that most people who did transition would not be gender ambiguous, quote-unquote, in any way, and three, make certain that those transsexuals who fully transitioned would remain silent about their trans status. Alright, so I'm going to read a little excerpt from Transgender History by Susan Stryker. This is found on page 73. Uh, Doctors in Europe had been using hormones and surgery for more than 50 years to improve the quality of life for transgender people who desired those procedures. Doctors in the United States had always been reluctant to do so, however, fearing that to operate or administer hormones would only be colluding with a deranged person's fantasy of quote-unquote changing sex. Or would be enabling a homosexual person to engage in perverse sexual practices and after 1949 California Attorney General Pat Brown's legal opinion against genital modification created legal exposure for doctors who performed genital surgery this situation began to change in July of 1966 just before the Compton's cafeteria riot when dr. Henry Benjamin published a path-breaking book the transsexual phenomenon in it He used the research he had conducted with transgender patients during the past 17 years to advocate for the same style of treatment that Magnus Hirschfeld had promoted in Germany before the Nazi takeover. Benjamin essentially argued that a person's gender identity could not be changed and that the doctor's responsibility was thus to help transgender people live fuller and happier lives in the gender they identified as their own. So laws were put in place by the 1960s that allowed certain states the ability to uh, perform what we would possibly call today gender confirmation surgery, uh, sex reassignment surgery, gender reassignment surgery, as well as the administration of hormones and hormone replacement therapy. So these few hospitals had a limited staff and could only interview a select group of people for the surgeries that they needed. Not everyone interviewed received it. Now, these medical professionals ruled out any client who had a history of trauma, a history of mental illness, and, well, any client who was assigned female at birth. Some theories believe that trans men were rejected due to the ease in nature of constructing a vagina rather than a penis. Similar logic has been used to justify non-consensual and many times undisclosed genital surgery on intersex babies. That said... These theories might have more weight if these same psychological professionals had interviewed the same amount or, in some cases, any subjects assigned female at birth prior to the creation of such facilities. So while it may seem like we're only focusing on trans women with the rest of this episode, and in a lot of ways we are, it is because of the exclusion of trans men that they were affected by medical gatekeeping and rendered invisible or non-existent to the medical community. The gates were shut on trans men early, often, and always. Now, for trans women who were chosen to be seen by psychological and medical professionals, they were held up to extreme standards of femininity. If they strayed from the path of a 50s housewife, they'd be considered by medical professionals to be not serious about their identity or a mere fetishist anything from wearing pants wearing not enough makeup or acting in a non-submissive fashion could lead to medical professionals denying your transition or as julia serrano put it the gatekeepers also kept the number of transitioned transsexuals low by requiring them to conform to oppositional sexist ideals regarding gender. Many trans women, after this practice had been in effect for a little bit of time, would advise other trans women who were going in for the first stages of evaluation how to act and what to say in order to move forward. As a result, these professionals trashed trans women in medical journals saying that they were deceptive because they would say what these professionals wanted to hear to appease a rigid definition of woman. Julius Serrano says, Those who did not follow this script risked having their requests for sex reassignment denied. Of course, the gatekeepers eventually realized that many, if not most, trans people were merely telling them what they wanted to hear, and their resentment around this can be found in the articles they published, which often contained descriptions of transsexuals as being deceptive and liars. Apparently, they found it more productive to vent about their experiences in the medical literature rather than question the legitimacy of their quote-unquote true transsexual archetype, or acknowledge the role that their own oppositional sexist assumptions played in forcing trans people to lie in order to obtain relief from gender dissonance. So as an example of these trans women uh, essentially just doing what the doctors say so that they would actually give you what you need, There is a book by Vivienne uh, Namaste in 2000 that Julia Serrano references called Invisible Lives, which includes an interview with a trans woman who was initially denied hormones because she showed up for her therapy appointment wearing male clothes. I just went back, and this time I did all my coal makeup inside and outside my eyes, wore my little fur jacket and my tight black pants, and she said, You've come a long way since I saw you first, and now I am convinced that you're a transsexual. It was like three weeks later. It should also be noted that to move forward, one needed to pass, as in most cases not only a woman, but what the professionals would deem an attractive woman. Even if we ignore the bullshit about being required to pass, the base concept of a doctor's decision, based on whether or not you're hot, goes beyond bullshit and into almost psychological thriller levels of bizarre obsession on the doctor's part. Can you imagine being told, I'm sorry, but you wouldn't look attractive, so you can't have chemo? Or, smaller scale, I can't remove that wart or those skin tags because... I still wouldn't find you attractive without them. I realize these procedures are, aren't are directly related. However, the logic is still the same. And let's talk about passing for a moment, then. It is profoundly bullshit to tell a person, hmm, well, your identity is based on whether I, as a medical professional, believe you will actually look as the gender that you know you are. How is that their business. How is that not the individual's business? And not to mention, I'm just going to call straight up bullshit on the idea that only the hot people get what they want. Only the hot people can be given that kind of confirmation about who they are. But if you passed the passing test, I guess, uh, by passing the potential beauty part of the exam the trans person would then be required to live an entire year, sometimes two, as a woman without the aid of hormones. So you'd have to live a bulk of your life as that without being aided. So you could still work, right? Like, you know, you're living your life as a woman, but you could still work, yeah? Well, no, because you don't have job security. I mean, even today, Most states don't have any kind of comprehensive or or even basic protection for trans individuals. You can be jobless just because of your gender identity. So okay, you're jobless. At least you've got a family who can support you. Maybe you'll have understanding parents, right? Maybe. But should you go in for this procedure, you are actually coached by these professionals to remove all traces of your life prior to transition. No baby pictures nothing. And that also sometimes meant estranging yourself from your family. If you were married, you were heavily advised to, if not forced, to divorce your wife. And if you had kids, your spouse was instructed, or I suppose you would have to tell them, daddy is going far away and you may never see him again. And you were then instructed to do that, move far away where hopefully no one would know about your life prior to transition. And then, if they found out, you were told you should try and move away again. So you have no support. You have no people around you by design. You have no marketable skills, and you have no work history. This only really benefited the very wealthy for bullshit reasons. It also helped keep trans individuals from finding community. This was the most insidious part of it. We couldn't even help one another out because if we tried to seek one another out, it would quote unquote endanger us if people started asking questions about us. And this is a this is a mentality I remember exhibiting early in my transition. The fear of being found out, the fear of being known, the fear of community. And the more I look into this, the more I realize how much all this medical gatekeeping has affected me on a personal level. I remember understanding myself. self. But still, going to three different psychs to try and figure out what the next step in the process was. Saying, basically, I don't know anything. This was, Keep in mind, this was pre-internet. At least, internet was not what it was now. This is like the days of AIM. Because I'm a little bit older than some, but, you know, I was still a kid with the internet. So I just knew, if you were trans, you had to go to a counselor. You had to figure, you had to get something from them. But when I asked them about it, they'd have no idea what I was talking about. Now, when did medical gatekeeping stop? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, it hasn't. There are still a lot of gatekeepers out there. Uh, It's becoming less and less. There are a lot more... There is still a lot more access, but I'm also speaking from the perspective of a trans white woman in New York City. The standards that they use are the HBIGDA standards of care. Now that used to stand for the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, but is now known as the World Professional Association for Transgender Health or WPATH. The latest change to the WPATH was on September 25th 2011, and it is the seventh version of the WPATH SOC. And in the most recent list, some of the revisions include a recognition that gender nonconformity in and of itself is not a disorder, a strong affirmation that attempts to change a person's gender identity through reparative therapy are ineffective and unethical, strong affirmation that transition-related treatments such as hormone therapy and surgery are medically necessary for many individuals and should be covered by insurance. Continued emphasis on the individual nature of transition-related care and the flexibility of treatment guidelines. Additional guidance on the treatment of adolescents and children, including guidelines for puberty-delaying treatment, near-elimination of the real-life experience requirement as a prerequisite criteria for medical transition in adults, and the, with the exception of some genital surgeries, uh, discussion of a wider range of treatment options, including voice and communication therapy discussion of the preventative care needs of transgender people, clarification that the standards of care should be applied in, the enti- in their entirety to those who are incarcerated or otherwise living in an institutionalized setting, uh, a call for health professionals to advocate not only for their patients, but example, by helping them obtain updated identity documents, but also for larger policy and legal reform promoting tolerance and equality. These are just some of the ways that medical gatekeeping has been pulled back. So all that said, this was 2011 that most of these changes went into effect. That was five years ago in September. There have been a lot of other changes up through the 90s that really helped pave the way, but ultimately the fact that gender nonconformity is somehow only in 2011 being considered by medical professionals to be completely natural, is bananas. I don't know any other way to say that. And the idea that we're finally saying, we can help you with your transition, we can help you with HRT, without lived experience, quote-unquote. How did it take us this long? Now, how this connects to Silence of the Lambs, uh, I hope is a little bit obvious, Let's take a look at Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter was Jame, better known throughout the film as Buffalo Bill. Uh, He was Jame's doctor. He decided that, based on the HBI GDA standards, Jame was not a woman, was not trans. Jame was confused, had trauma in their past, and wanted quote-unquote a change. They needed a change. We accept because the movie is written by an outside person that this must be true until we really start thinking about that. Because Lecter, who denied James transition services, is in a lot of ways responsible for James' actions. That said, James being trans is independent of James being a serial murderer. That may still have happened. That also said, we love Hannibal Lecter, but Hannibal Lecter is essentially what gave way to James lashing out like she has Hannibal Lecter has in some way sexualized her and said I would not be sexually attracted to that therefore they are not really a woman Hannibal Lecter is far more insidious when you think about how much medical gatekeeping went into this now That said, history is history. That doesn't necessarily make it any more or less transphobic. The piece itself, as we determined, was transphobic. But the writer of the piece, Thomas Harris, and the screenwriter, Ted Talley, were working with exactly what they had access to. They had access to the HBIDGA standards and practices. They probably talked to a number of psychiatrists who, at this point in 1991 were at the were essentially stuck with what they had now that being said maybe they could have reached out to a number of trans individuals but they would be a lot harder to find they existed absolutely many out and proud trans folk but particularly based on the medical research they had done these people are quote-unquote not trans and this is why medical gatekeeping is so insidious it posits that a lot of folks who absolutely could have helped would have been looked at as incorrect. And the ones who could have helped, the ones who could have actually provided some sort of information, some sort of help, be a consultant, would have been told by doctors they need to hide. They need to be away. They should not talk about it because of medical gatekeeping, because of all these medical professionals who told them how they essentially would not receive the medical care that they need if they wanted to live out and proud. So I'm sorry that this ends on a fairly sad note, but things have been changing. So I don't want this to seem like it's horrible. At the same time, I still also think Silence of the Lambs is an important film, for the trans community as transphobic as it is because it details a time where we can look at and say this is what it was like before all of these amazing changes have happened. And I think that that's still important as much as it's horrifying. So thank you so much for listening. We've got Rocky Horror Picture Show coming up on the 20th uh, as well as our Patreon So please sponsor us. Please, you'll get more hard-hitting stuff like this, maybe some other things. It's the mini-episodes, you never know what they're going to be. Mostly because I just figure them out as they come. (laughs) Is It Transphobic was produced, edited, and coordinated by Ashley Lauren Rogers. The Is It Transphobic logo was created by Phoenix Sweeney, and you can see more of their work at tinylionroars.github.io. The original music you heard was all created by Vivian Alladrin, who you can find on Bandcamp at vivianaledrin.bandcamp.com.